Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. And if you'll remain standing for the reading of God's Word as it comes to us from 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18 to the end of the chapter. There we read, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You may be seated. This week I went to WSB-TV Action News headlines, and these were a few of the top stories when I looked. One dead in a triple shooting in Atlanta. Second story, man shoots and kills girlfriend in front of nine-year-old son at an apartment complex. Third story, pilot killed when small plane crashes in Paulding County. Fourth story, Georgia residents begin arduous cleanup after Hurricane Michael. This was just one day, one news station in one city. No doubt if I picked another day or another city, I'm sure I would read things that were similar. In fact, these stories have become so commonplace that we've become inoculated to them. And we give very small or little reaction as a result. We can hear a news story and in a sense it goes in one ear and out the other. And as a result, the news station can move from telling of a terrible tragedy right on to talking about sports or the weather. And sadly, we probably give more attention to those things because they are of more personal interest. Because the weather, quite frankly, affects us more. And tragedy, as long as it's out there somewhere, well, that doesn't affect us much, does it? As long as disaster doesn't hit home, we're okay, or so we think. And I do not say that as a condemnation in the least, because if you were to personally feel every tragedy, you would be a troubled soul 
for sure. But I would say as Christians, there should be a deep sorrow of the fallenness of this world overall. As we read in Genesis about how God created the world and how he made this and it was good and he made that and it was good, there should be a deep sorrow that falls over us as we get to Genesis chapter 3 and read of how great that fall truly was and is. That mankind and all of creation suffers under the effects of that fall to this very day. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, all of creation groans and we groan with it. And with that groaning, we have the inevitable question, how long, O Lord? How long? How long will this world be subjected to futility? How long will it be until the day of redemption? How long until the freedom from the bondage of this corruption that we endure? You feel that, don't you? You sense that every day. Both externally and internally. Externally, with the sin and fall that is without, as well as the sin and fallenness within. And we ask, how long? How long, O Lord? And we're not the only ones that have felt that. That has been the theme of all believers throughout the ages. All the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And so, perhaps the next question is, why so long? Well, the Apostle Paul, or excuse me, Apostle Peter this morning is helping us to answer some of those inevitable questions with this passage. To a people that were experiencing their own suffering, persecution without as well as their own sin within. And Peter attempts to give hope and meaning to their suffering and in their suffering, as well as point them to the day when the final glorious freedom will come, that final glorious freedom that is in the Lord Jesus Christ, the day when the suffering is rewarded and vindication is won. And so Peter again brings us back to Christ as our example, as well as our victor over sin and over suffering. And so we'll look at that in three points this morning. Christ's purpose in suffering, Christ's victory over suffering, and thirdly, Christ's salvation amidst suffering. But before we get into those points, a quick word as we begin This is one of the more challenging scriptures, not only in 1 Peter, but in the entirety of the New Testament. Perhaps you sense that this morning in the reading, wondering exactly what it is that Peter is saying here. And so those of you that like to see your pastor squirm with difficult passages, today is your day. There are at least five different legitimate interpretations of this passage and we will not go into each one of them 
The reality is all of them have their merits, but suffice it to say, when commentators are going back to the early church fathers of Cyprian and Augustine to try to help explain their interpretation, you know that you are in the proverbial exegetical weeds. As Luther says in his commentary on this text, he says this is a wonderful passage and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament so that I do not know for certain what Peter means. To which every interpreter would say, Amen. This is not a passage that we would choose naturally. But since it is our practice here in this church to preach through whole books of the Bible, this is the next passage at hand, and so we must tackle it for better or for worse, because this is God's Word. And wrestling with difficult passages is far better, even though it may be more difficult, than hearing the words or stories of a mere man. But as we begin, just as a few exegetical reminders, as ways of interpreting this passage, to understand the meaning of this text, We have to say that scripture has only one interpretation. Many applications, but there can only be one meaning of the text. And so it can't mean something to me and then something different to you. But with that being said, it may be difficult to come to that one interpretation. We are fallible interpreters of God's infallible word. Yet, even with that being said, it doesn't mean that we can't have some understanding. It may not be perfect, it may not be complete, but we can come to some meaning of what Peter is trying to get at. If we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, interpret the less plain in the light of the more plain and knowable, as what our confession tells us to do. And so we will try to do all of those things things this morning, but let me just say by way of warning, buckle up. This is not an easy passage, and you really need to engage your mind. This is not a walk through the park. Well, enough caveats. Any more disclaimers, and you might think that this is a commercial for prescription drugs. First, Christ's purpose in suffering. This passage comes at an end of a larger section that begins in verse 8 of chapter 3. And so it's helpful to understand the context, because context is king, as they say. We go back to verse 10, and we see there Peter quoting Psalm 34, and he reads this, or says this, Keep your tongue from evil, and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Why? Well, he goes on to say, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ear, his ears are open to their prayer. In other words, the Lord is not ignorant to what his people go through, especially in suffering, which this entire section is about. We can never think that God has forgotten or forsaken us. In times of trial and tribulation, in times of persecution and hardship, no, God does not forget us. He actually uses suffering. As we saw a few weeks ago in verse 17, this can even be a part 
of God's will. And so where is there an example of one suffering for righteousness' sake? Where is it that God uses for good and uses the extreme example of suffering for His will? Well, there is no greater example than the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what Peter does here at the end of chapter 3 as he finishes out this section. And this is the third time in three chapters that Peter brings back Christ as an example so as to keep us on a short leash, as it were, so that we wouldn't stray too far before we're brought back once again to Christ and what he went through and what he endured. And that's exactly, as I said, what he does here. For as he finishes out verse 17, it says, For it is better to suffer. And then verse 18, For Christ also suffered. Christ suffered. Not just a little, but as you know, a lot. The Westminster Catechism talks about four stages of Christ's humiliation. In this life, not only in his birth and conception, but in his life and in his death and even in his burial. And that we would say at every stage of that humiliation, there was suffering. So when we talk about Christ descending, Christ lowering himself, Christ humbling himself, Christ coming to this earth as a servant, we're not just talking about any servant. But we refer to him as Isaiah does in Isaiah 53 as the suffering servant. The man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. Christ entered into our suffering. He entered into the suffrage of this world. And he understands suffering not just a little, but he understands it to its infinite degree because he experienced the full weight of God's wrath. And so when we experience suffering, we only get a little taste of it in comparison to Christ. We know it only in part. But Christ Jesus experienced it in full. Again, Isaiah 53, he was stricken and smitten and afflicted by God. He experienced the full curse of the law was put upon him. And so when we see this example of Christ, this is not just an example so that we can say, see, Christ can relate to your suffering. Yes, indeed, he can do that, and that is right. But I think what Peter is saying here is that through our suffering, we can relate to Christ's suffering just a part, just a little of all that Christ went through for our sake. That our suffering is a drop of water in comparison to the ocean of suffering that Christ endured. But even as I say that, that does not 
diminish the things that each and every one of you have gone through. In fact, when we go through our suffering, it doesn't feel just like a drop, does it? It doesn't just feel like a little. It feels like a lot. In fact, there are things that you have gone through, perhaps are going through right now, that you feel like are completely overwhelming you. Feel like they are going above and beyond your head and that your world is about to end and you don't know if you can continue to go on another step. Now take that suffering times infinity and then we begin, only begin, to understand the suffering of Christ. And so the question would be why? Why would Christ do that? Well, that is exactly Peter's point. Because there is purpose and meaning in suffering. We see that in verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. That through the suffering of Christ, we are brought to God. And we are made righteous and we are made alive in Christ through the Spirit. And so if there is meaning in Christ's suffering, then do you think that your suffering is for naught? Do you think, in a sense, that Christ would waste your suffering as you go through it? Of course not. Would Christ go through all that he went through, infinite sufferings that we cannot even Imagine, all for our sake, only to forget us now, and this time, through whatever you are experiencing. Of course not. Or will he not use even this for his own purpose and for his own glory? Just as he did his own suffering, his own death and burial. Of course, he will. As I said two weeks ago, Christ's suffering puts perspective and meaning into all suffering, no matter what it is. And that meaning and that perspective, no doubt, will be limited from our eyes in this life. But I guarantee it is there. Perhaps in parts. Perhaps if we see it or if we don't. We must meditate on the sufferings of Christ, even in our own. And that is why he brings us again to Christ. And so that helps us to at least begin answer the why. But the next question is, for how long? How long must we endure this Suffering. How long must we undergo these trials and tribulations? Well, we see here Christ's second victory over suffering. Just as our suffering is in part, so too is the time in which we must endure it. That there will be a time that the pain and suffering of this world will be put away. That any and all persecution that we face in the Lord Jesus Christ will be vindicated. And again, we know this by Christ's example. We see it here in verse 19, and this is where we begin to enter into the fray, as they say. 
as it says, that he was made alive in the spirit and then he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now what is Peter speaking about here? Some believe that this is the time between Christ's death and resurrection that Christ descended into hell and he preached to those that were there. Some think that this was an opportunity, a second opportunity for them to repent and come to salvation. Some see this as a proof of purgatory along with all sorts of other foolish ideas. So what does Peter mean? Well, go back with me to our theme. Notice what Peter is trying to say here. Yes, Christ suffered. He was put to death. But notice there at the verse 18, the end, but he was made alive in the Spirit. In other words, Christ suffered, but he's not suffering anymore. Christ was humbled and humiliated, but he is humiliated no more. He was put lower than the heavenly beings, but he is not lower anymore. Christ endured death, but he is dead no longer that through his suffering and death, he achieved something. He achieved life and he achieved victory. He achieved exaltation. He ascended to the highest place in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. And there he rules with all power and authority. And from that throne, he exercises his power and authority. That's what we read in Psalm 110, isn't it? The Father says to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That is a psalm of Christ's ascension. That everything is put underneath the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. All is subject to Him. Men and women, angels and demons, powers and principalities, all of it. The whole nine yards, as they would say. And so, Peter even ends this passage with that very thought. You see it in verse 22. Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, powers, having been subjected to him. That is true on the day of his ascension, as it is true today, as it will be on the day of God's judgment, the final day. That God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is lifted up. He is exalted. He is upon his throne. As we sang earlier, up from the grave, he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He rose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. And so Christ's death, but his resurrection and ascension are proclamations of his victory, of his rule and reign. And he proclaims that throughout the world. And that proclamation goes even to those spirits in prison, as it says in verse 19, that judgment is coming. And I think these spirits that Peter is referring to are spiritual beings that have disobeyed. In other words, Satan and all of his minions, all of those that are, quote-unquote, in prison. If anyone is in prison, 
They are in prison because they have been condemned and judged already. And that's exactly what happened on the day of resurrection. All those that set themselves up against Christ were condemned and judged. The victory was won. The battle is over. As Matthew 12 says, the strong man is bound. Or as John says in Revelation, Satan was cast down. Yet, the full judgment awaits. That will come on the day of God's final judgment. And so we read in Revelation chapter 12, and I think this helps us to understand this passage John says, the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. He makes war on the seed of Christ, on those who keep his commandments and hold to the testimony of Satan. In other words, Satan and his minions know that they cannot defeat Christ. So what do they try to do? They try to cause as much havoc on this earth as they can. With God's children in particular and with the world in general. And I think that is what Peter is saying here. That your suffering is part of something so much greater. So much bigger. That's taking place in the spiritual realm. Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood. But against principalities and power. And so the question might be, why does God allow for this to remain? Why doesn't he just bring the final judgment? Well, he doesn't because he's patient. Not patient for Satan's sake, but patient for the sake of his church, for the sake of his elect. And that is what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish but all to reach repentance. That God is patient. And is there an Old Testament picture of God being patient, even in the midst of judgment? Yes, the time of Noah. And that is what he refers to here as an illustration of God being patient, even though giving that judgment That judgment was going to come on the earth. But we read in the story of Noah that it was at least 120 years from the time that God says, I'm going to destroy the earth. And so Noah prepared this ark. And when the first drop of rain fell. 120 years. And yet with every nail, with every board that Noah drove into that ark, was a proclamation to that generation that judgment was coming and that they needed to repent and turn. And every day, as that ark was being built, as they saw a physical manifestation of this great and gigantic boat being built, that the judgment is coming. And finally, one day, it did. But Noah is a picture of that final and greater judgment yet to come. That God is patient. God is enduring. God is long-suffering. Even through evil days. Turn with me for a moment to 2 Peter chapter 4. 
As I said earlier, Scripture needs to interpret Scripture, and here we have the author himself, I think, giving us the explanation of what he was talking about in 1 Peter chapter 3, where he gives a, a very similar word in his second epistle. 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. It says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. In verse 6, he goes on to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah also being an example of God's patience. But he summarizes these two examples in verse 9. If the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Notice what Peter is saying, both here and I think back in 1 Peter chapter 3. That the Lord will bring about judgment. We do not need to worry about that. But the Lord is also patient. And he's also kind to the godly while they go through trials. And so this is a passage both of judgment as well as salvation. Let me end with this third point. Christ's salvation amidst suffering. The time of Noah was a low point in redemptive history. If you think about it, it almost hit rock bottom. For we read in Genesis chapter 6, just a few chapters after Genesis 3, the fall, that the Lord saw the wickedness of the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. We read that the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Just as we are grieved with our own pain, with our own suffering, with the suffering of this world. And if we were God, we would have wiped this earth out a long time ago. But we can be grateful that God is not like us. Because we read, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah received grace, he and his household. And that is why I think Peter brings this back to the idea of baptism because as he thinks about grace and he thinks about households, his mind immediately goes to baptism. As he says in verse 21, um, excuse me, in in, in verse, uh, yeah, 21, excuse me, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. That here we are reminded of God's covenant promise. Every time we stand at the baptismal font, isn't that what we are proclaiming? That God is faithful. God is faithful to his covenant. God is faithful to us as well as to our children. That baptism is a sign and symbol of salvation. And as Noah and his family pass through the waters, so too they passed from judgment into salvation. So too, as we stand at the baptismal fonts, we are proclaiming not only that judgment is coming, but that there is a means and a way of salvation that 
baptism does save, not that baptism itself saves, but that Christ saves through cleansing, which is represented in baptism. Just as Noah passed through the water, so too we do as well. And even though there was just eight souls, eight people, as Peter says, God was patient, even for those eight. Patient enough for the ark to be prepared before he brought that judgment upon earth. So that none of those eight were lost. None of that household was lost. He saved them from the wickedness and persecution of that world. And we can say from those small beginnings, God has grown that number exponentially, hasn't he? So that on the final day of judgment, that God has been patient and long-suffering long enough that there shall be not just a few, not just many, but there shall be an innumerable host that will be able to stand on that day. As many as the stars in heaven and the sand upon the seashore. Why? Because God was patient. Because God was merciful. Even in the midst of evil, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of persecution. So, dear believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, do you doubt the goodness of God? Or wonder what he's doing? Can you not even watch the TV or read a newspaper or go online because it just troubles you too much and you just want to stay in your safe little bubble? But even in that safe little bubble, we are not immune, are we, to the difficulties of this world, to the things that trouble us greatly. And when they do, is your thought that God has left you, that God has forsaken you, thinking that these trials, these temptations, these sufferings are too much. They'll do you in. Peter brings us back. As we always should be brought back to the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, just as Christ suffered, you will suffer too. But just as Christ triumphed, you will triumph too. And you will see that triumph. We see it in parts even now. But we'll see it in greater manifestation one day. That that which is true spiritually already, we shall see physically upon this earth. That there shall be the exaltation of Christ and all of his people. God has not forgotten you. Isaiah 49, 15 says this, Can a mother forget her nursing child? Will she not have compassion on the child that she has born? Obviously a mother will not forget her child. Obviously a mother will have compassion on that child. And yet, the scripture says this, though she may forget, if that even be a possibility, though she may forget, I will never forget, the Lord says. God is forever faithful to his covenant, to his promises. All things will and must work together for good. Let me close with this, two verses of a hymn that you already sung. And when you sang them, 
did you believe them? For they read this way, For when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you, I only design the dross to consume and the gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That so, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. To that, Peter, and indeed all the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, can say amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for difficult texts. Texts that make us dive in and think. Lord, indeed, this text does that this morning. And Lord, even though we come oftentimes with a troubled heart, a troubled soul, Lord, we come to you in that troubledness, in that pain, in that suffering. And there we find comforts. There we find your everlasting truth, the truth that we so desperately need in times like this. Lord, we thank you that you have never left us, have never forsaken us, and never will. And Lord, we pray that we would be able to endure faithfully with the strength that you would provide, with the grace that you would give until that great day, that day that we would see the complete working out of all that you have already accomplished here upon this earth as you usher in the new heavens and the new earth and we as your completed bride would be made perfect and be made complete and that we would live with you forever and dwell in glory. Lord, those are truths that are almost difficult for us to even think about and even believe. Lord, but we know that they are true because you have given them to us in times like this, and we praise you for it. Lord, we pray that you'd help us. Give us your spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.